Hey y'all, I'm Abby. And I am Chris. And this is Beautiful Places to Die. Hey. <laughs> Welcome to part two of our series into the murders in the historic triangle. Last week we discussed the geography and attractions of the historical triangle and the part it played in the formation of our country. And what a beautiful area it is. Every time we research more, I'm just blown away by how gorgeous this area is. For the past week, we've been talking about what it would be like to move there because we've just loved that part of this research yeah. so much. Yeah, even the bad stuff that, that we, we had to talk about. Right, we did discuss the brutal murders of two beautiful, amazing young women, Kathy Thomas and Becky Dowski, in 1986 inside of the triangle on what's known as the colonial parkway rip to those beautiful angels today we will discuss six more bright young flames who met their end around or in the triangle about the same time the case we discussed last week as well as the three today are what law enforcement and media now refer to as the colonial parkway murders a series of four double homicides spanning from 1986 to 1989 at least four we'll see we'll see with that said we're going to venture outside of the historical triangle today not too far but i think there are some points of interest that you'll want to add to your road trip bucket list we're going to go to a lovely little swamp known as the ragged island wildlife refuge and this place is actually really gorgeous it, it's lovely for a swamp so the ragged island wild sorry the ragged island wildlife management area is about 1537 acres and it's full of smartweed salt marsh cordgrass marshmallow raccoons rabbits and ducks as well as their primary tree which is the loblolly pine wait 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 Wild marshmallows? Wild marshmallows, which I believe are those corn dog looking things that grow, those like reed looking things. I don't know. I didn't research that part. Wild marshmallows is all I heard. Yep. I can go pick marshmallows. I knew you were going to pull that out. If you did want to go and explore off of the wooden pathways that they have set up by the management team, you know, big, nice boardwalk, uh, you would have to watch out for some wax myrtle, which gets entangled with the green briar there, and it kind of makes your pathways impenetrable. That and, you know, you'll probably sink into the marshy wetlands or the various creeks which make up a bulk of the land. For someone who was born and grew up in and around a swamp, I know nothing of these plant names, but I'm sure I'd recognize them all if I saw them. Look, I saw Greenbrier and I was just like, oh, wow, that's, that's what the mall is named after. I was after. like, you said that and I was like, the mall? <laughs> and the parkway, the whole parkway, that's Greenbrier. <laughs> So, Ragged Island is not really an island. It's actually more of a peninsula uh, sandwiched by the James River to the north and Ragged Island Creek to the south, but there is, it does just cut into land, uh, so it's not really an island. So, if I'm understanding correctly, that would make it just west of the area we were talking about, the historic triangle. Yes, you can actually see Newport News from the uh, from the area. Um, you can look out across the James River. You'll be able to see um, Newport News. Some Sometimes, depending on the weather, you can see the Norfolk Naval Station. Um, so it's actually it's actually east of the Colonial Parkway, though, and, and kind of southeast. Okay, but it, like, kisses the historic triangle. Uh, yeah, yeah, basically. Okay. So there are some smaller rivers that make up the Ragged Island. These are the Blackwater River, the Pagan River, the Pagan Creek, and the Jones and Cypress Creek. 
So what's really cool about this area is that it is still one of the most untouched pieces of nature that Hampton Roads has left to offer. So the area, it's not really bustling like maybe Newport News across the river or Suffolk down south, but the area is still built up and really busy with a lot of homes and commercialization. Um, and the James River Bridge is literally right there and that has a bunch of traffic on a daily basis. Yet this park looks and still feels the same way it did 400 years ago when the colonists first landed there. That's so, so bonkers. I lived there, you know, over 20 years and I never made it to this place. I never even heard of it until we talked about this case. I think I've been there. I, I probably didn't know the significance of it, but I do remember going to the James River Bridge and going to the south side of it where this is kind of off. And um, I think we went crabbing there at one point. Sounds... Mm -hmm. So it is, uh, I've, I read a bunch of blogs from hikers who said that the trail is absolutely wonderful. I think it's about 2.5 miles and you it, it's one way. So you go all the way to the end and you have to walk all the way back. Uh, it's $4 to get in, uh, which helps to cover all the co cost of keeping up with the, the boardwalk and making sure everything is cleaned up. But there is still a lot of trash in the area. So a lot of people try to clean up as they're hiking to, to keep the area nice. That's, you know, what we got to do. Mm -hmm. Take care of our earth. Um, I didn't find really anything in the way of dangerous wildlife at the, the island. There are definitely plenty of reports regarding bugs. Um, and if you've spent any time in Hampton Roads between April and September, like, it's going to be bugs. That's just what you have to get used to. Uh, most of the other wildlife, though, is fish and waterfowl, um, and of course the occasional rodent, like I said, raccoons and rabbits running around. With it being so marshy, like bigger animals would probably just sink into the water, so I think really the worst you'd have to watch out for there is snakes, and I didn't see any of those reported. Right on. Sounds like a great place to go. But I did actually find some dangers reported there back in the day. Um, I don't think there was an emission back then. And a lot of people would use it as a late night parking area. They would sell drugs and mm. prostitution and things like that. So if you dig into its history, it does pop up with a little bit of a seedy nightlife. Oh, I'm sure it does. I mean, any place like that does. Um, but no, I mean, just on a regular, it seems like a really nice place and a, and a great place to just escape out of, you know, the city life into nature. Not that city life is big there. Cool, cool. So it's actually this marsh where we're going to first venture outside of the Triangle today, and that's to discuss the lives of 20-year-old David Knobling and 14-year-old Robin Edwards. Okay, let's, let's get into that one. David Lee Knobling was born January 31st, 1967, the first and only child of Judy and Justin Ward in Newport News, Virginia. Things weren't great with the Wards early on, and I saw rumors of possible abuse and reports that Justin just wasn't cut out to be a dad at the time. I'm not sure if he left or if Judy and David left, but either way, by the time David was two, Judy was dating a man that would actually become David's father, Carl Knobling. Oh, okay. When David was four, his mother was expecting a child with Carl, and the pair married. Carl officially adopted David, and that's how he ended up as David Knobling, Around that time, the Knobling family also welcomed David's brother, Michael, into the world. Auto racing is big in this area, and Carl and his boys were very much into it. It was a big part of David growing up. And this is where David formed his love of cars and working on them. 
Later, he would go on to own a 1986 black Ford Ranger that was his absolute pride and joy, and actually a point of interest in this case and his death. Okay. I mean, yeah. It sounds like an awesome car, too. I mean, especially that brand new. Well, yeah, and he had a you know, modified different things on it, including uh, Michael had helped him wire the radio so that you didn't have to have a key in it to play the radio so he could just hang out, you know, in the bed of the truck listening to the radio. Oh, man, that does sound like an awesome truck. Right. But uh, let's go back a little bit. When David was 11, Judy and Carl actually divorced. Oh, wow. I'm not sure the reasons, but, you know, it happens. So Judy, at this point, was a successful legal aide and a single mother to two boys. And these boys were rough and tumble. Well, definitely. Yeah. Carl did remain a presence in his son's lives, but for the most part, it was just Judy doing it all on her own, working nonstop long hours to provide for her sons. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what you got to do at, at that point, unfortunately. Right. Eventually, between fights at home, you know, like sibling-type stuff between David and Michael, scuffles and hijinks at school, it said that Judy was on a first-name Uh, basis with the principal right judy then decided that she would send david to hargrave military academy in chatham virginia okay this is about 200 miles away from the where the family lived in newport news wow that's pretty far yeah but it's okay because it's actually an all boys private boarding school Uh, so david lived there on campus nothing bad could possibly happen there boys don't even like kissing each other (laughs) i didn't see any reports of kissing but i think that you know david's experience here was kind of typical of what you hear of kids going to military school they hate it it's the worst thing ever but eventually they start to respect the order and discipline it brings into their lives it's said that his year at the academy really did change him and he kind of came back a different person that's really good for him i'm glad david was known to be like a goofball type guy friendly super helpful to anyone who needed it And more likely than not, you would find him amid a group of friends or off adventuring with his little brother, Michael, in tow. Super cool. In late 1985, 18-year-old David began dating 14-year-old Tara Cook. Okay. And and two years later, in the summer of 1987, the couple became pregnant with what was to be their only child. That little, I don't know, shouldn't shouldn't be happening that way, but, you know, I did. Outgoing and silly, David had a childlike vibe, but with parenthood looming, he recently had started making changes towards adulthood, even more so than he did with the military school. He had been working for his father's landscaping company, and he left that to pursue a job in sales. Very cool. Yeah. And he even started talking marriage with Tara, though it's said this was very on and off again, young love type relationship. So I'm not sure how serious his marriage talks were. I mean, I was talking about marriage at 16 too. I wasn't in this position, but like I, I was putting up on live journal how I was going to just marry the love of my life and everybody was judging me because I wanted to. Oh, live journal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dating myself. So Tara's family wasn't crazy about her getting married this young. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be either. Right, but they actually agreed to give them permission to get married now that a baby was on the way. Shotgun wedding. (laughs) By her account, they were both very excited about the next step in their lives together. 
But I've also seen reports that David was really feeling the pressure of the whole situation. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, uh, you can't believe him. I mean, twenty years old, he's 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 still a kid, and you know, he's very childlike still. So he's this is big. Like <laughs> I would be very surprised if he was mature and put together and you know looking forward to this 100 percent. like i would definitely agree he should have some apprehension i don't think no amount regardless of how much you plan you freak out and you stress out when you know you have your first child regardless of your age or situation oh yeah i mean i knew i was and i was just three years older than him so saturday september 19th 1987 was the day that Tara delivered the good news to David that they could start planning their wedding with her family's blessing. Yay! Wedding bells! But unfortunately, this was the last time that Tara and David would ever speak. Oh no. That's not good. David and Tara were unable to hang out that evening because Tara was actually grounded and couldn't go out. Uh, I mean... I guess that makes sense, but this is, like, the mother of his child. Like, can't they just, like, bypass that? I don't know. I, I don't know I how have... this works. I really hope I don't have to experience teen pregnancy. <sighs> Your lips to God's ears. <laughs> so, instead, David agreed to help out his younger cousin, Jason. Oh, cool. Yeah, Jason um, had a date, and it was kind of raining, and he got around via moped. Um, okay so david was like hey let me uh give you a ride his date was a girl with a girl named robin edwards and they actually brought michael along with them too so i'm guessing that you know jason and robin could do their thing without david just kind of standing there awkwardly and he could hang out with michael yeah yeah makes sense so on the evening of september 19th the four headed out to a movie dragnet never seen it it's uh i think tom hanks and is it Dan Aykroyd? I don't know. We might have to get our producer to, to add that in later. <laughs> um, I think I saw it a very long time ago. Anyway, the movie was sold out, so they didn't see it either. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> they hit up the arcade instead, and you know, because it's an inside activity, and it said that Robin and Jason kind of hung out the whole time, and David and Michael hung out, but the, they didn't really like vibe as a foursome. It was just, you yeah. know, they let them have their date. Okay. On the way home, it started to rain a little bit harder. So, like the proper long, so like the proper young gentlemen they were, Jason and Michael sat in the bed of the truck, allowing Robin to stay warm and dry in the cab with David. Oh, okay, okay. This uh, twenty or so minute drive home was the only interaction that Robin and David had had the whole night. Okay. After taking Robin home, David dropped off his cousin before he and Michael headed home where they watched a little bit of TV, shared a uh, frozen pizza with their mother, Judy. And then around midnight, David told his brother he was going out for a bit. Then around midnight, David told his brother he was going out for a bit, said goodnight, and was never seen alive again. Oh, man. Also, I bet they were watching wrestling. That just seems like a 1987 Saturday night activity to do. Just just watch some wrestling. Yeah, but they didn't have, like, TiVo or DVR. Do you think they were able to find late-night wrestling? There were probably Saturday night main event. Like, it, it, it streamed everywhere. I don't know. I don't know how cable worked in the 80s. I was, like, not even around half the time. <laughs> um, you were just months old, I think, at this point. <laughs> yep, yep. When uh, David didn't show up at home on Sunday morning, 
no one was like really concerned right away okay. because he was 20 years old. He yeah. had lived on his own in the past. He was an adult. He would often go out with his friends until the early morning hours. It was no big deal. Right. And you know, TBH, I was exactly the same in his age running around the streets of the 757. You were like that before his age. You, you were like Robin running around at 14. As Sunday night approached, Judy began putting out calls to David's friends looking for him. Oh, man. Not ringing, like, an official alarm bell at this point, but she's, you know, a mom, and she's concerned because yeah, yeah. her kid's not home. Almost 24 hours. That, that's a long time. Right. So this brings us to the early morning hours of Monday, September 21st. Okay. Deputies approached an abandoned black Ford Ranger. Oh, man. In the Ragged Island Wildlife Parking Area. I think most would immediately find it alarming that it's raining and there's this nice late model truck, you know, it's like a year old, haphazardly parked, door open, and the windshield wipers on with no driver in sight. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd be a little concerned there. Even more concerning, upon approaching the vehicle, the deputy noticed the window was partially rolled down, Mm -hmm. the radio was on, the key is in the ignition, turn to the accessory setting, which, you know, it said that that would be done so you could play the radio. Right. I mean, that's what you do nowadays. David didn't have to do that, though, remember? Oh, yeah, that's true. On the dash, they saw David's wallet. In the car were two pairs of underwear, one belonging to a man, the other to a woman, along with what would seem to be both of their shoes. Okay. Like, that's, like certainly staged like nobody would just randomly leave like even if you were just planning to leave like for some reason to go skinny dipping or something like you would probably just put all your stuff in the seat together not like the wallet on there and then plus yeah you're right if he could play the radio without turning the key on then obviously somebody didn't know that and thought they had to turn the key on to make it look like that so i'm I'm voting this is staged we'll see of course Judy, his worried mama, went from concerned to terrified upon hearing that David had just abandoned his pride and joy like that. Right. His family pled with law enforcement on Monday to consider this a red flag. Wait, so they, wait, I thought they had found this. They didn't, like, investigate it? Well, this is Monday. Okay. They, um, they, they called and they said, hey, you left your truck here. And she's like, that's my son's truck. I don't know where he is. He would not have left it. You know, we, he's missing. And they just were like, oh, well, whatever. You're a liar. Right. (laughs) So the family of David filed a missing persons report in Newport News that day. And various members of the family spent the day combing the shores of Ragged Island. His dad went out there in, like, waders and was, like, looking for his son or some clue as to where his son could have gone. Yeah. As mentioned, David's underwear and shoes were accompanied accompanied by those of a female. Right. Yeah, you mentioned that. Not Tara. No. Yeah, because he wasn't with her. Despite not seeming to take the investigation seriously, law enforcement did work to quickly identify who the woman in David's car could have been. After learning that that last evening David was seen, he had been with a girl named Robin Edwards, who it just so happens her parents had also filed a missing persons report that same monday morning what the heck like so he went back to pick her up and hang out here we don't know oh man they were only alone that 20 minutes yeah 
So Robin's mother was immediately able to identify the pair of shoes as Robin's and forever would be linked the fates of David Knobling and Robin Edwards. Oh, man, that's horrible. Robin Margaret Edwards was born August 3rd, 1973 in Lexington Park, Maryland to Benita and Robert Edwards, better known as Bonnie and Bob. Bonnie and Bob. How I cute. love it. So super cute. She was their second of three children with Janetta, her older sister, and Pam, her younger sister. Bob was in the Navy, and in Robin's first few years, they lived in Maryland and Puerto Rico before the family relocated to Newport News, Virginia, when Robin was just about three years old. Oh, man. So that's where she grew up, or as far as she was able to grow up. Could have got better orders, dude. Newport News is trash. (laughs) (laughs) As I was looking into Robin's childhood, so much of her reminded me of myself and my friends growing up. She was all about adventuring. She loved exploring on her bike, spending hot summer days swimming, Saturday morning cartoons with friends, Barbies, pop music, Hulk Hogan. I can so very clearly picture her childhood because it sounds exactly like mine. From what you told me, it definitely sounds like it. I mean, that's why I said earlier, it just, that that's you. For everything I've, I've read about Robin and you've told me about her, I'm like, yeah, that, that could be you. You guys could be besties. Of the 16 murders we'll discuss in this series, she is the one that really drove me, drove me into the case. Mm-hmm. She's in between pretty much the age of me and my biological mother and her wild side reminds me so much of my biological mother. And then her, her other side, how she grew up reminds me of my own life. And it just, yeah, uh, she's in my heart. Yeah, definitely. As I mentioned, she had a little bit of a wild side and her wildfire only aden- intensified as she got older. Which led into some preteen rebellion. Well, of course. She would hang out with the older kids. Oh. And, you know, same for me. I was actually hanging out with the older kids. By the time I was five or six, I was going around with the 12 and 13-year-olds. I was the older kids. Like, I was the one. I always had my brothers and sisters tagging along with me. And, you know, that would come with younger. And all my other friends were my age. We did have one older person that, like, kind of corrupted me with metal and everything. But then, like, when I was a teenager, I was the older kid. Yeah, well, you have younger siblings. I, I yeah. didn't. Robin wasn't just m- mature for her age. She was really intelligent, and she kind of probably more likely fit in with these older kids, and I think I identify with that part as well. Yeah, and she's a middle child, so she had an older sister, so she was obviously learning from her from a young age. Right, but she loved the little kids, too. She spent mm-hmm. a lot of time with Pam. They were only about two years apart in age. Okay. And even little kids in the neighborhood, she would just go and play with them. That's awesome. Before she was in middle school, Robin was constantly testing the line of rebellion. She was smoking, sneaking out, and she even started getting sexually involved with older boys. Mm. But, you know, with adult life comes adult problems. And it said that she was really struggling with depression. Yeah. She was dealing with drugs, you know, through smoking and and sex. And these were building up addictions. And that leads to depression because you're you're so much more mature than a lot of your peers at that age. So she probably felt a little bit alone as well. Well, you know, there's also the influx and surges of puberty hormones. Yeah. And it's a lot to juggle. Yeah, absolutely. So it's when she was 13... 
just months before her death that Robin ran away from home for the first time. Okay. Despite what seemed like a happy home life, Robin was tired of waiting to be adult and took off to start her life. Mm. She was gone for about a week. Okay. That's long for a teenager. I'm sorry. Like, I couldn't have done that at 13. Well, she took up residence with a waitress and kind of lived this. I think that she wasn't necessarily running away from home, but was running to her adult life. She felt yeah. like she, it's time to be an adult. Yeah. In the summer of 1987, she went back home, but her depression got worse. Oh, okay. And she eventually ended up spending time in a psychiatric facility where they diagnosed her with severe depression and ADHD. Oh, okay. That explains a lot then. This was great. She was finally able to begin treatment yeah. for what had been raging in her brain. And she immediately got to work to getting her life back on track. Okay, good, good. By all accounts, the last two months of Robin's young life were a stark contrast to the year prior. She was enjoying time with her family again. She started engaging in school, taking interest in her own future, and making plans for that future. Oh, awesome. She was working as a local peer counselor in Newport News, hoping to help troubled youth that, you know, she identified with all too well. Okay. So she really was turning it around. She even took interest in a boy her own age from school and excitedly accepted a date when Jason asked her to go see Dragnet. Oh, but they're not going to make it. Dang it. Well, they, that, was, that part wasn't their fault. So the evening of Saturday, September 19th, hadn't gone as planned. The movie was sold out. It rained the whole day. But Robin and Jason managed to have fun at the arcade anyway. Okay, good. And she made it home before her curfew. Awesome. Watched some TV with her sister Pam, and then headed to bed around 12.30 in the morning. At least, you know, some some of these people have some happy memories of her in her last moments. Yeah, yeah you know, she was, I think she was turn, had turned things around and was really going somewhere. And considering how her heart was and how she had really gotten into the peer counseling, I think she would have gone on to help a lot of people. Yeah. Just after dawn, Bob was headed to work. And when he looked in on his girls before leaving, Pam was sound asleep. And Robin's bed sat empty. Oh, no. His heart sank. He thought, she's run away again. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, you know, that that's at least last time she came back. So, you know, it's not horrible to think. Due to her history of running away, though, the Newport News police weren't willing to take her disappearance seriously on Sunday. Yeah, makes sense. They didn't even agree to let her mother file a missing persons police report until Monday morning. Look, there must be something about working a missing persons case that every cop must hate. Because every case, it's just like they do everything they can to deter the family from making that report. It's like, they're like, please don't, because they really don't want to do this job. Well, and then they do let them file the report, and they're like, hey, you know, the first 24 hours were the most important. Why didn't you file the report? Yeah. Like, oh, geez, cool. So the next thing that Bonnie and Bob knew, they were being asked to identify a pair of shoes. Unmistakably Robins. They were covered in her hand-drawn doodles. Oh. Do you remember that drawing on your sneakers and your jeans? Yep, yep. Yeah, so that's, you know, they knew they were her shoes. Having been down this road before with Robin, Robin 
the Edwardses started to make the rounds um, that one does when they're looking for their runaway child. They looked at some of the places she had gone before, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. They tried to keep law enforcement interested, and they actually reached out for media to the media for help, as they had done six months before. Yeah. They um, were able to get on the news, and they ran an article in the paper asking her to come home the first time she ran away. Yeah. On the evening of September 23rd, the Edwards family, minus Robin, at this point she's been missing for five days, Ugh. was sitting around the TV waiting for their pre-recorded plea for their daughter to return home to air. Just as Judy and David Nobling were sitting in front of theirs, hoping for news of their own missing son, Carl Nobling was still out at Ragged Island where he had been looking for his son David the past few days, despite the heavy rain. He was out there yeah. in slickers and waiters. and I would be too. <laughs> right. Before Robin's story could air, the news broke that the bodies of David Nobling and Robin Edwards were found on the banks of the James River in Ragged oh. Island. No. Both had been shot execution style in the back of the head. Oh, gosh. That's horrible. It is. And that's how their families learned of their deaths on the news. Wow. Not from law enforcement. That's effed up. That's all with the exception of Carl, who was, as I said, at Ragged Island. He was there when he saw the horrified face of a jogger as he ran for help moments after discovering Robin's body. Carl forced himself to keep looking. And law enforcement didn't seem to have an urgency to do so. It was hours before they actually let him to go search. And he, accompanied by a, de- a deputy, discovered his very own son's body in the marsh of the James River. Wow. As I mentioned, both had been shot in the head. But additionally, David had been shot through the shoulder in an upward angle as if he had been trying to escape at the time. Mm. Robin's pants were unbuttoned and her shirt was pulled up as she was floating face down in the river. David was about 50 feet away, tangled in brush, dressed in only his jeans. They were about a mile from where David's truck had been found days earlier. That's so crazy. Like, wow. Like, where were they, though, the entire time? Because, like, they had to be somewhere. Oh, well, let's think. They were in the water. Oh, but just they only traveled a mile? I'm okay. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, I just, I need to look that up a little more because, like, Ragged Island is, like, at the mouth of the river. Like, if they went missing at Ragged Island, they probably would have gone off. Like, that's what I just find weird that they took five days. And why are these linked to the Colonial Parkway when they didn't even happen on the Colonial Parkway? Well, I think it's, um, this, this case is obviously not on federal land, so it was handled by the state police instead of the um, FBI, like the Colonial Mm -hmm. Parkway, and they actually weren't linked at that point. We'll talk about when they get linked. Okay. So that brings us to case number three in the next year, in 1988. So we've been from the fall of 86 to the spring of 87 and now 88. So about eight eight months. Right. Up to this point, we've discussed brutal slayings of four young people, but the fate of the next two lives is still unknown 35 years later, as they or their remains are still missing. Oh, that makes it even more difficult to figure out what happened. Exactly. Richard Keith Call, better known as Keith, 
was born March 8th, 1968 in Newport News to Barbert and Richard W. Call. The Calls had five children with Keith right in the middle. Joyce, the only girl, was the oldest, with Chris behind her just ahead of, just ahead of Keith. Doug and Stephen were his younger brothers. Cool, cool. Keith grew up close to his siblings and parents. He was very much like an all-American little boy. Reading how his loved ones remember him, I could just picture him catching frogs and playing baseball and doing all the things. Oh, sounds like it. His, his family's home was in a bit of a more rural area in Gloucester, and the kids spent much of their time exploring and enjoying things outdoors. Okay. Especially Keith, who loved to be on the water as much as possible. I mean, anybody who lives in that area loves to be on the water. And, like, yeah, if you live in, in the rural areas, that's all you're doing. It, it's very rural out, rural out there. Plus, there's just something about the water that oh yeah settles your soul. <laughs> mm-hmm. He wasn't quite the adventurer that David and Robin were. It said he stuck more to home. Even in high school, he and his friends were never far from home. Just okay. hanging out. Mm-hmm. Keith is said to have been an old soul, a protector of the underdog, but with words and reason. His mother said she can't recall Keith ever getting into, like, a physical altercation with anyone in his whole life. Okay. Keith was really fascinated by technology and thought emerging science of people owning personal computers was, like, super neato. Mm -hmm. So after he graduated high school, he began taking classes in computer programming at Christopher Newport College. Christopher Newport College is actually really cool. It's where I wanted to go, so I know a little bit about it here, and I, I did a little more research for this. It did So it started in 1960 as Christopher Newport College. Uh, it was originally a two-year branch of the nearby College of William and Mary, which we talked about last episode. They did eventually gain independence in 1977. I love how that phrasing is. That's on their website, is they gained independence from this, this college. Uh, they had already become a, a rebellion. Yeah, they had already become a four-year college in 1972. Uh, so this became, they, they were privately owned by themselves, and they actually had gained university status in 1992. So in the 80s, where all this takes place, there was a lot going on. The school was growing each and every year um, as it was trying to get more students and more recognizability. In 1982, they actually had a newly formed baseball team that had played its first season. Good this, team. Yeah, this followed up in 1985 when the softball team was established as well. Do you know their mascot? I do not. I didn't see anything about their mascot on, on anything I saw. Uh, so in the late 80s, the college was actually actively transitioning to become a residential campus. So this would allow the students to live on campus instead of having to commute. But this didn't actually happen until about 1994 when the first residential halls were built. So today, Christopher Newport is a public university. It has about 5,000 students enrolled, and they are a very, very liberal school. And they put that in everything they do. They want to prepare these students for careers that are going to be really worthwhile and meaningful to them. Uh, they also desire to have a really diverse and inclusive campus. So they, they actually put in there one of their rules is they want to make sure everyone has a place and an opportunity to receive higher education. Can I interrupt with something that I just Googled? Yeah. 
their mascot is Captain Christopher Newport. Oh, man, which they're, is what it's named after. They're known as the Captains. That's ah, called the Captains. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yes, yeah, so, so the school is named after Christopher Newport, who was a sailor um, and part of the original colonists that, that landed there. Um, as part of the academic offerings they have, students have a liberal learning foundation class. This includes things like logical reasoning, written communication, and economics. They also take an areas of inquiry class, which reinforces things like philosophical traditions, rights of citizens, and the scientific method. But they do it on a bit more of a creative or practical basis. Some of the courses there are like creative expression and investigating the natural world. What's cool is to get admitted, school doesn't really need applicants to take the SATs or ACTs. Oh? Yeah, they do accept them. Um, but what they do try to do is they use a holistic approach when it comes to accepting students that they really feel would just do best at their university and would fit in well. Um, starting in the 90s, as I mentioned, the resident halls were built, um, and the university would require freshmen and sophomores to stay on campus unless they were in commuting distance. And then as of 2014, they started to require juniors to stay there as well. They had spent a whole bunch of money on these residential halls. It was like a huge thing, so they obviously wanted people to stay there. Fancy. I don't know if COVID or remote learning has changed this at all, um, but it, over the past 40 years, you've just seen this big shift from just this commuting college to a huge, beautiful campus that they want everyone to stay on. So I can imagine that they, they try to keep it at, in person as much as possible. Well, you know, it sounds like a, a pretty cool place. And uh, I don't think it was on my radar, radar when I was finishing high school, but if I had known all about that, I think it might have been. Yeah, I think I would have pushed harder for it. it. It was just, I think mostly the reason is just because I, it was across the water. Being a Southsider, it was in the peninsula, so it felt far enough away from where <laughs> I lived, but also still close enough that I knew what was going on. And it seemed a little bit more obtainable than College of William and Mary. Right, and for me, it was like, ugh. That's across the water. We don't go across the water. So instead, I moved to Florida for college. So across the water. That 1.5-mile drive. I mean, we just can't do it. Instead, I chose 10 hours away. Yep. <laughs> so, I mean, you can see how this was a great match for Keith and, you know, him learning about computers. Oh, yeah. He's definitely that kind of guy. Backing up, though, when he was in high school, he met his sweetheart, Celine Brown. Uh-huh. Like a lot of young romances, the couple was on and off, but they were really in love. But now she, a year older, went to a college in a different town, and they didn't see each other as much. Okay. Kind of like with David and Tara, during the off periods, they would sometimes date others, and they knew about it. Okay. April 1988 was one of those off times. Like splits of the past, the couple likely considered this just a temporary bump in their road of their love story of forever. But while on this break of sorts, Keith decided to ask out a classmate, Sandy Haley. She was a tall girl with a huge smile and beautiful brown eyes. Oh, sounds gorgeous. Cassandra Lee Haley was born May 16th. Hmm. Tomorrow is her birthday. Her birthday. We are recording this just one day before what would have been her 54th birthday. Happy birthday, Sandy, if you're somewhere out there listening. Cassandra, as you had just mentioned, was better known as Sandra or simply Sandy. She was the baby of the house with three daughters born to Joanne and Glenn Haley. 
Glenn was in the Air Force, mm-hmm. and the family would move a lot when the kids were little. Okay. Sandy was actually born in Florida in Walton Beach, but when Glenn did retire, the family moved to Newport News before they eventually settled into Grafton, Virginia, in York County on Virginia's Peninsula. Oh, okay. As a side note, Joanne uh, also served in the Air Force, and that's where Joanne and Glenn met, but she did leave earlier on to focus on her beautiful girls. Very cool, though. I mean, women in the Air Force, that that, that time period, that's amazing. Right, and we're talking 60s. Mm-hmm. When she was a little, Sandy adored her older sisters, and she would follow them around trying to keep up, and it's said that they absolutely doted on her. When she was like a little tot, they were seven and nine years older. So to them, she was just like their little little living doll. Oh, man. I can just imagine that. It sounds so cute. Mm -hmm. Sandy was like the lead girl from a John Hughes movie, though. Mm -hmm. She was pretty and popular. She loved gymnastics and cheering and dance. Her look, her vibe, all of it was like the quintessential 80s teenager. Oh, man. She had even taken a few modeling gigs in her early teen years. So I can just imagine that she was the girl that other girls wanted to be in high school, but not like, you know, in a mean girl type way. Sandy was a friend to everyone she met, and it said she had a very generous heart. I can just see it. She was probably at the mall, too, and some dude like was like, oh, you could be a model. I'll take your pictures. Because that's just what I heard you do in the 80s. Mall in the 80s. Yeah. Well, speaking of her generous heart, her heart in general... <laughs> had her eyes locked on just one boy throughout middle and high school. Oh. He was the school's star athlete. Okay. They were close, and they dated for a few years, but they kept their relationship a big secret. Why? At the time, interracial relationships were just as taboo as lesbian relationships. Okay, like, if I hadn't researched what I researched yesterday about 1980 time, I wouldn't have believed you that, like, it was that racist and that that time period right and you know people who had been her friends from cheerleading and other things it said some of them turned on her and the only mean words anyone ever spoke to sandy were the racist a-holes she went to school with and had found out about her relationship and condemned it Mm, york county (sighs) probably got a lot of them right after high school sandy kicked things into high gear she was juggling a job as a receptionist in a salon a nanny gig she was coaching gymnastics. What? And she had a couple other part-time hustles, all while attending Christopher Newport College. Oh, man. And maintaining her iconic look with not as much as a hair out of place. She, she is just the glory girl. Right. Her boyfriend was still in high school, and he was very focused on his football career. Okay. He actually would be drafted into the NFL. Very good. And I think that for their relationship, it just got to a point where their lives were moving in different directions. They amicably spill it, but stayed friends. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Sandy was casually accepting dates, but more for just fun things to do than looking for a relationship or a boyfriend. Right. I mean, she doesn't need to settle down anything anytime soon. So, you know, it seems like they're kind of in the same place, just looking to go out and do something with someone else and have fun. Yeah. And that's, you know, kind of where we meet with Keith and Sandy at school, Christopher Newport College. 
um, they had like one class together, and Keith asked her out. She accepted right away. Very nice. You know, they had different social circles with a little bit of overlap, but this date would be the first time that she and Keith would be hanging out outside of school. Sounds fun. So it's Saturday, April 9th, and the plan was to go see a movie. More movies. Yeah, I don't actually don't know go what see movie the movie they were going to see. Don't go see the movies, you'll die. <laughs> then they were going to stop by for a, like a small party type thing at an apartment in Newport News at the University Square Apartments. Okay. Not at all far from campus. Right. Sometimes I see it called a party, and then sometimes some people say it was like more of a casual impromptu. I'm going to say party, but I don't mean like a rager. Uh, I mean, no point raging on a April 9th. <laughs> no, not on April 9th. Right. That's not even a fun time. Maybe the 11th. Yeah, maybe the, the 11th. <laughs> Keith was still kind of reeling from his ba- breakup with Celine, you know, figuring they were about to get back together. But Celine was the one who always kind of like gave in and she hadn't called him yet. So he's uh. kind of bummed. So when they got to the party and he spotted a mutual friend of his and Celine's, he basically spent like the whole time chatting with this woman, Lisa. Okay. He told her he wasn't having a great time. He was just kind of over it and ready to take Sandy home and get on with his night because he had actually had plans to go to another get together to friends and uh, stay the night there. I want to say slumber party, but I guess you don't say that about 18 or 20 year old boys. So. <laughs> Whatever. It was a slumber party. Right, a slumber party, yeah. Probably playing computer games. What else do you do on a slumber party when you're boys? Right. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I've never been a boy at a slumber party. But he was, you know, ready to get there. So he was going there after he took Sandy home. But she was a social butterfly. Yeah. She socialized with many different people at the party. And she was having a good time. I didn't really want... A, and she didn't really want to go home until she had to. Yeah. She had a curfew. Um, and I think it was two or two thirty. I've seen it different ways, but around two, her best friend was actually there. So, you know, they're hanging out with Mm -hmm. the bestie. I actually saw unverified reports that her ex was at the party too. As I mentioned, they're still friends and it said that she spent some time chatting with him and his friends. Okay. Either way, they were at this party together, but no one is saying they really hung together at any point. I think they both had separate friend groups and they were just kind of went to their comfort zones as you do when you see your friends you know you can go on a date with someone and it's just you two and you're hanging but then if you get somewhere where you have a bunch of friends and they have friends you're probably gonna just gravitate to your friend group yeah usually i can't really infer whether or not they enjoyed their alone time at the movie but if the vibes were off i think he would have probably just taken her home instead of going to the party at all so i don't think they had a horrible time up to that point no probably not but i mean it also could have been a thing where okay you know they you don't get to talk too much during the movie they know they're going to this party so she's like you know worst case we separate so right. you know yeah it could have been neutral just you know a, a nothing really standing out of it but nothing really bad right i, I but i I think my point is I don't think it was like a horrible time. No, definitely not. Everywhere I see it posted that the two left the party by 1.30 a.m. on the morning of Sunday, April 10th, because Sandy had that curfew around 2 or 2.30. Okay. And she would have called if she was running late. Um, I've seen it reported that she had a strict curfew, but I've also seen it reported that she was a good kid and the youngest, you know, the youngest kind of gets like the lax parent rules so her parents were like pretty chill about it as long as she called and said hey i'm gonna be late or hey i'm staying with a friend or whatever they just wanted to know and that was you know basically my rule growing up you just like had to call 
and, and say you were going to be out. Yeah. But I also had, you know, a pager because 90s. Ooh, fancy. <laughs> One thirty is said to be when they left the party. However, Lisa, the friend that, Kate, uh, that Keith spent over an hour chatting with at the party, is certain that Keith and Sandy were still at the party when she left at 2.10 a.m. She knows for certain the time because she was admiring the clock as she was leaving. Okay. I mean, I get that, but maybe the clock was off. Maybe. Other partygoers vary the time that they left from 1.30 to 2, but actually no one saw them leave. I mean, nobody pays attention when people leave unless you, right. like, make a big deal of it. Right. So we don't know. We don't have right. a hard I mean, deadline it's whatever. when they left. It isn't about until about three, okay. an hour later, that anyone remembers seeing any sign of them. And that was in the form of Keith's car. Huh. Keith's brother, Chris, was driving home down the Colonial Parkway, and he noticed Keith's car at the pull-off, where it would later be found by rangers. Huh. He went on to say that he actually would have stopped to see what his little brother was up to if he had realized that the red Celica was Keith's, but it was on the opposite side of the road, so like it was going in the opposite direction. On a pullout, he didn't get a great look at it, but he did say the door was open at the time. Driver door. Okay. Normally, right, normally you drive past cars on a dark road at night without paying much notice. Yeah. And I think that maybe Chris wouldn't have even remembered seeing the car at all if not for what had happened just before. What, What happened? As he was driving home... A white van, onto the parkway, a white van pulled out on the parkway behind him and began driving like super crazy fast, 20 to 30 miles over the speed limit and looking like they were trying to catch up with Keith. Just when they got behind him, they whipped around him and went past him. They went to the next turnaround and pulled around and headed back to the pull-off where Keith's car was parked. Huh. Chris wonder- didn't pay attention to where if they stopped at the pull-off or what happened. Yeah. He just kept going. Yeah, but that, that does seem strange. Like, maybe they were waiting to see if he would notice and turn around, and then when he didn't, yeah, I don't I mean, know. That, that's weird. That's, that, that's his brother's car, though, and his no, brother I mean, be there. Yeah, I know, but still, like, if they were watching the area, they didn't want anybody there. No witnesses. Well, we do have another witness about an hour later. A local hospital worker was traveling the Colonial Parkway when they noticed the car. Door open, dome light on. They didn't stop. No, I wouldn't either. Right. A couple hours later, at 7 a.m., Keith's father, Richard Call, was headed down the parkway on his way to work at the Amheuser-Busch Brewery, and he, too, noticed the red Celica at the Overlook. Right. At the time, a lot of people worked at the brewery. It was one of the biggest in the world. Yeah. He immediately recognized that this car was his son's, though, because he had a custom license plate that read Keith's. 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 Wow. Good job, dude. Vanity plates are all the rage in Virginia. Oh, I know. So oh, you all don't know, but we know. <laughs> he stopped. He's like, hey, that's my kid's car. Yeah. He said that while it was odd that the driver's side door was open, nothing else seemed off. And he figured his son was exploring nearby with friends. That's weird, but okay. In fact, the driver's seat in the small two-door car was folded forward, you know, like they do to let passengers in and out of the back seat when it's just two doors. Right, okay. That makes sense. He noticed his son's watch and a woman's purse. 
Richard searched, but the keys weren't in the car, so it really just seemed like he was off with friends. Yeah, okay. He was running kind of late now, so Richard got back in his own car and headed off to Williamsburg to work. Okay. He said there were no other noticeable personal items in the car. That just seems strange, but I mean, yeah. Well, we'll find out why that might have been. I would be searching, like, honestly. We're going to find out why that might have been. Then it's about 7.30 that the park rangers are patrolling the Colonial Parkway and came across Keith's car at the pull-off facing the York River. Mm -hmm. This scenic overlook is just two miles west of the overlook on the same stretch of road where Kathy and Becky were found murdered inside Kathy's car. Oh. Oh, yeah, because, yeah, I know the map on there. That there. There's pretty much one road when you leave out of Yorktown. It travels right past the York River for a while, and then it goes inland towards Williamsburg. And we actually talked about it in more detail in our last episode. Yeah. So the Rangers reported that they came, up, came upon the car just about 30 minutes after Richard, mm-hmm. the key was in the ignition, and they definitely weren't there minutes before because Richard looked. Yeah. What's more, scattered across the vehicle is near two complete sets of clothing, one belonging to a man, the other to a woman. Both of the man's shoes are there, and one of the woman's high-heeled ankle boots. Huh. It's the same thing that happened with David and Robin. Right, but they weren't there just a few minutes before. Yeah, that's so strange. But as you can see, this case is different from the last two, as where we have a large chunk of time accounted for. This timeline is pretty tight. You know, they left the party two at the latest, and then the car was seen at three, then again around five and seven. Yeah. So this is where things really go wonky and put the timeline in question. Park rangers determined the vehicle to simply be abandoned, and ha- and they had it impounded. Oh, no. Furthermore, they decided to do the driver of this abandoned car a solid and clean out all the items in the car. What? And put them in a lost and found box at the ranger station. What? Oh, my God. No, guys. So, it's very possible that the timeline is off and the rangers first encountered the car before Richard Call did. Removed the items, and while waiting on the impound is when Richard happened upon his son's car. I mean, maybe. Yeah, that has to make sense, because, like, otherwise, this unsub is just getting really, really lucky and, like, sticking around the area and, and doing all this in between people showing up. Right, but that... That whole ranger removing it. Yeah, no, that that definitely sounds like they they messed up something. Well, keep listening. (laughs) I'm not going to. (laughs) (laughs) You're going home. In an attempt to locate the driver of this abandoned car and inform them that it's been impounded, the rangers reached out to the call residence because that's where the car was registered to. And that's when they learned that the car is not abandoned and that if Keith isn't with the car, he should be considered a missing person. Oops. Oops, indeed. It oh, was man. more than oops. It was a big oh shit moment for the Rangers. <laughs> so, they get all that stuff from the Lost and Found box, put it back in the car the best they can remember where it was, take the car back to the spot where it was oh. found. Like, psych! We yeah, didn't do anything. What, what are you talking about? We'll see here the whole time. <laughs> Definitely didn't completely screw up a crime scene. Definitely didn't. They peaky <laughs> promised each other to never tell anyone. 
and they started the investigation with yep. now a staged crime scene. Oh man, look at this cool crime scene we came across and didn't touch at all. Losers. <sighs> it's said that when the rangers attempted to enter the vehicle, the seat was pulled all the way up. Like someone would have to have been under five four for it to be driven in that position. Keith was six foot, Sandy was five seven, and she was in heels. Neither could have driven the car like that. Yes and no, but you did say that the car seat was folded up, and I know in a lot of cars, especially in the 80s, you have to move it forward and pull the seat down. So if there were people in the back seat, that makes sense why it was left like that. That is literally the next point of my notes. (laughs) So great. (laughs) So yeah, I'm not putting much stock into the fact that it was pulled that far forward. I don't know if we're looking for a extremely short serial killer. No. That would be super strange considering how the car was left. Right. In addition to the personal items in the car, which seemed to be the clothing that Keith and Sandy were seen wearing at the party, there were beer cans on the floorboard in the back seat, which was pretty atypical of Keith. He did drink, but never drank and drive. Okay. And investigators were able to recover multiple sets of prints from the car, but no leads went to the perp. But remember, the, rangers were yeah. in and out of it. They said that the they pretty much invited everyone to the crime scene. Right. Um, Sandy's older sister was actually law enforcement, and when she showed up, she was just horrified. Oh, gosh. So the Haley and the Call families filed missing persons reports that very same day. But this is where things kind of get sticky, I guess. Hmm, okay. You're right. The car was impounded on park service land. So they filed with the rangers, and that would make this FBI jurisdiction. Yeah. The family's home was in Grafton, so they filed with York County. The calls filed in their home of Gloucester, Hmm. and the couple was last seen in Newport News. A lot of cooks in that kitchen. Yeah. By Monday, April 11th, law enforcement, the families, and now the media are scrambling to figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. Early theories circle around the idea that the couple drove 30 minutes out of their way to the Colonial Parkway when already pressed to get Sandy home in time before her curfew. Right. They parked, stripped off all their clothing, as it was in the low 40s that night. Right, and, Right. Then they descended the 25-foot drop from the overlook into the river for a late-night swim where they got swept away. Wow. Brilliant police work. Like, I don't need to look anymore. Clearly, that's exactly what happened. Right. Dumbasses. Tuesday, the next day, April 12th, the FBI catches wind of a news report on the radio about this experience on the Colonial Parkway. And they're wow. like, hmm. Perhaps we should check this out, you know, because none of the other agencies, including the Rangers, had thought to contact the FBI about this sus activity on federal land. It's because they didn't want to get in trouble for moving the crime scene. (laughs) They knew. They're like, oh, crap. They're going to ask why this is all messed (laughs) up. So FBI takes over lead on the investigation. Well, at least we got somebody smarter on this. Hopefully. Hopefully. They still haven't done Kathy and Becky, though. We're still figuring that one out. Right. This was also the first time that I saw any connection to those cases. They started suspecting that this could be connected to the slaying of David and Robin because that was just a less than a year before. Yeah. Um, so that was that connection. But the Parkway connection brought Kathy and Becky's names back into the spotlight in the media. And this is when speculations of a serial killer kind of started to take flight. Okay. I mean, looking like it, I guess. A little bit weird, but we can kind of see it 
April 13th, the next day, the FBI finally says that foul play is possible, but they're still investigating all possibilities. At this point, both families say they strongly believe the youths have been abducted. abducted. Definitely sounds like it. But they're doing a full-out search, land, air, Mm -hmm. water. Dogs were used to track the scents. The dogs headed a mile west to a bridge over Indian Creek Field. Okay. With both of their scents. Uh Uh-huh. From there, the dogs that were tracking Keith's scent followed along the bridge on the side of the river. They followed the shoreline along York River back east to the spot. So they went west down the road to the bridge, down onto the shore, and then back east past the car. And then that's where the dogs wanted to go into the York River. Oh. The dogs following Sandy's scent took a different turn. After reaching the bridge, they crossed over the parkway away from the river and basically immediately went into the water at Indian Creek, Indian Field Creek, which then flows into the York River. That's crazy. After that, the searchers loaded cadaver dogs onto a boat and they were actually able to chase the scent as far as 70 yards into the middle of the river before losing the scent. Oh, man. Divers take over, but they came up empty. Ugh. Finally, they took to air for the search, and about two and a half miles from where the car was found, they see a body floating down the river. They coordinated with the Coast Guard, and the body was pulled from the water, but quickly determined to have no connection with the missing couple. Oh, darn it. Furthermore, it could have been this scent that the cadaver dogs were hitting on. Ooh. Mm. Well, I don't know the science behind that, so... I don't know. Me either. (laughs) In the following weeks, there would have been exhaustive land, water, and air searches for the couple, multiple, with no luck. The York River was dragged. Divers conducted underwater searches, but no trace of Keith or Sandy was ever detected again. Last month was the 35th anniversary of their disappearance. They ran away together. They just That's they helpful. fell in love after the party and just decided, screw this, we're we're running away. Let's hope. We're gonna live with that. So we have one more case to talk about today, if you have the energy. Yes. All right. Daniel Lahr was born August twenty third, nineteen sixty eight, in upstate New York to Henry and Margaret Lahr. Margie. Margie. Daniel, or Danny, as he was more commonly called, is one of four children. His brother Clinton is about four years younger than Danny, and his sister Barbara is the baby. I'm not sure who the fourth sibling was, but I think they were older. Ah, okay. He grew up in rural Virginia farmland in the town of, that I can't pronounce. Trujillo. Trujillo. It's it's spelled Trujillo. Truxalo. <laughs> That's probably how they say it, though. I don't know. I mean, Someone there from there, there, let us know. Yeah, but some... it's actually in Amelia County, and uh, both of the um, people that we're going to talk about are from small townships yeah. in that. It doesn't surprise me. There's a lot of townships in Amelia County. It's uh, actually a county that was created in 1735, a uh, really old county uh, from the beginning of it. It was named after King George II's daughter, Princess Amelia Sophia Eleonore. But she was British, so it was probably like Amelia Sophia Eleanor. Why are the British people Southern? That's how they sounded back then. Like, oh, there's oh. rumors that Old British is actually closer to what we 
uh, talk as like Southern American, Southern U.S. Ah. So they. they so yeah. they were like, "Hey, y'all, this yeah, Princess huh. Amelia." It's Princess Amelia, right there. Um, as of 2021, it does hold a population of 13,286 people all across the county, um, and it makes up a, a large part of Southern Richmond, the metro. Okay. Um, one little thing that I know about it, it was one of the last sites of the Civil War, one of the last battles was fought there. Oh, okay. Because they surrounded at Appomax, which was really close by. Ah. So they did that and then went there. Anyway. Entertainment options were kind of limited in that area at the time, really rural. Yeah. Danny had a love for horses, though, and he was fortunate enough to spend every day with them on his parents' farm. You do you. I stay away from horses. He was one of those people that just had a bond with them. Ugh. Good for him. Horse uh, boy. Horse boy. <laughs> Other than that, it seems like he was a typical kid from a rural town. He spent time with friends and just driving around in his 1973 Gold Nova. Ooh, he nice. loved that car. That's a that's a pimp car right there. He paid $600 for it. Hell yeah. And uh, But he loved it. But I don't think he loved it like in the way that David babied mm. his truck and modified it. Yeah. For Danny, I think it was the independence that it brought him. Yeah. I get the impression that while he loved home and family and his horses... He was ready to strike out and see the world, and that the car gave him a chance to do that. Yeah, I mean, and that that's small town, that's small town living. Like when you get out into upstate Virginia, it's mostly nothing but farms and mountains. Even now. Yeah. And this is 1988. Oh yeah. So, oh, sorry, 89. The year before 1988, uh, Danny actually joined the Navy, which cool. is you know a great way to see yeah. the world. That's what you do in that part of town. However. However, Uh due to some legal trouble back home, he was discharged before even completing basic. Dang, dude. What'd you do? (sighs) Danny's trouble back home centered around a girl. Always does. For Danny, though, she was the girl. Mm. About a month prior to his swift exit from the Navy, Danny and his girl got married. Okay. But while he's in basic, the truth came out. She was four years his junior. At this point, he had just turned 20, and she was not quite yet 16. So they falsified her age so that they could get married against her parents' wishes. Like David and Tara. What the heck, bro? I mean, like I said, different time. And, like, rural. And, you know, when you're that young, like, it seems like a big difference, but it's really not. I mean, you and I are seven years apart, so. And I don't see that they were expecting. She just, they just were in love and were ready to be married. Yeah. So yeah. the courts annulled the marriage. Ugh. And Danny spent the last few months of that year in jail. Oh, that, like, whatever. Come on, guys. What sucked the worst for him, though, is that the judge ordered him to stay away from his lady love until her 18th birthday. Ugh. And then, like, there's just some places that groom that kind of relationship. Ugh. And they just had to punish him for, you know, like, they were both still young. Yes. Wasn't even that bad. All right. He obviously went through a period of mourning, but eventually he was back to himself and ready to get back at it and live life. Do it, bro. Get it, Danny. His little brother, Clint, had already moved out of the home. Okay. And he invited Danny to come see himself and his fiancée, fiance anna in a trip to virginia beach on the labor day weekend and that just 
what? seemed like what Danny needed. What is a 16-year-old doing living in Virginia Beach with his fiance? He was 17 at the I, time. You're still babies. They're babies. She was 18. Oh, my God. Babies. And so uh, Virginia Beach is about a two-hour drive. Danny brought along a couple of friends. They were actually a couple that were friends with him. So a a man and a woman. Uh And they headed, and their baby. And they headed to the tourist city of Virginia Beach, Labor Day weekend, 1989. What do you know about that? Oh, that's not a good weekend to be at the beach. Why? Um, So Labor Day weekend, actually Labor Day weekend for a lot of the 80s was spent kind of the same way. Um, and especially 1989, the same thing. Um, it started as kind of an amazing time, as it always does, because Greek West, Greek Fest was in full swing. So Greek Fest was a celebration of mostly young black college students gathering at the oceanfront and partying. You know, just enjoying the fact that summer's ending, school is starting, and they just want to go out with a bang at, at the beach. Um, so there is a current Norfolk-based Greek fest, but I think this is actually related to more Greek culture and food, not Greek as in, like, college uh, fraternities and, and sororities and stuff. Um, so this this happened throughout all the 80s, as I mentioned. Um, every year it would just kind of get bigger and bigger. Um, it wasn't official, and I think that's what kind of got people a little worked up. Um, mostly the upper-class white people of the oceanfront who didn't like all the black people moving in and and partying. They would have the police called on these men uh, or on these students. They even had the National Guard come in because they were so worried. There were supposedly reports of looting and rioting, especially the year before in 1988. But, like, I didn't go too deep into this research because, honestly, this deserves its own entire like podcast i guess or episode i mean this is this is huge race riots this was race riots before the la ones in 93 Hmm, maybe we'll see a race riot episode on the fear files we may have to um so the tension was really reaching astronomical levels here in 1989 which is why i say like I mean, he obviously, that nobody knew. I mean, and they lived there, but it's, it was getting bad. It was kind of a powder keg that was just finally getting packed in tight enough, and it was going to explode. Police were enforcing such stupid laws, like curfews. Like, they were putting curfews on the students, and if they were jaywalking, they were arresting them just so they had a reason to keep them off the street. Can I just say, backing up, growing up in Virginia Beach, curfews were a big thing. Yeah. In fact... As a kid, that was, like, the only thing I ever got picked up from the police one was being out after curfew, and they would just take you home. Well, they, they did not take these kids home. Well, they I was a little white girl. Put them all, yeah. <laughs> put them all in jail for a while. Uh, so the, the, the festivities started on, on Thursday and Friday. Um, over the course of the weekend, they just kept getting worse and worse. And finally, we hit September 3rd, 1989. This is when everything exploded um i read a a witness testimony from uh, one of the young men that was there at the time and he said like he he doesn't even know what happened it was just all of a sudden like you would just walk around a corner and people were fighting police were like running through with horses they were on their horses hitting people um there was looting and rioting and storefronts being damaged um thousands and thousands of people took to the streets blasting public enemies popular fight the power song and changing it to fight the police 
they were getting a lot of inspiration from Spike Lee's film, which is where the song came from. Uh, the film is called Do the Right Thing. And it just come out? Yeah. So over the weekend, 650 students were arrested. Over 100 storefronts were destroyed. Um, there was only one death that I was able to find, but that was unfortunately of a police horse. No, no. Yeah. When you said horses were involved, I was like, please don't tell me you yeah. were hurt. Yeah, unfortunately, somebody threw, <sighs> I think, a TV off a balcony and, and hit the horse. No, I don't yeah. want to know anymore. Um, many attendees and police all suffered injuries, but there were no real clear numbers. They just said, like, it was just people were, were pouring into the hospitals. It was just horrible. It, it really did. It changed the landscape of Virginia Beach. Like, it was definitely well known that Virginia Beach was racist. And I can tell you personally speaking that I didn't know just how deeply racist this was until there was the issue of the light rail coming from Norfolk to Virginia Beach and the upper class white people said they couldn't have people from downtown dirtying up their oceanfront. And I didn't know that that's what they meant is they didn't want black people there. And this was around 2000? Yeah. So, so it, not much has changed. We were talking, you know, a good decade before that one. This is going, yeah, so, this Greek, Greek Fest happened. Yeah, this stopped Greek Fest, obviously, because black people, you know, they felt unwelcome. They they really did. They felt like like nobody wanted them there. And, like, it, it's just something that really hasn't changed in that area a lot. But, you know, what's bonkers is you said 650 arrests of students. So we're talking teenagers. And these students were fraternity and sorority students at yeah. that yeah. You know, it's it, I don't think that this was a group of thugs. I think it was police freaking out and profiling. Uh, oh, it really was. It was it was storefront owners and police all just they were ready. They they saw skin color and they were just ready for for whatever the worst that they could imagine could happen because that's just how those people were to them. This was And it was gross. This was before, you know, my time of hanging out at the oceanfront as I was still just BB. And, um, but by the time that I was a teenager hanging out at the ocean run, there, there are signs and they're still there now, you know, no cruising, which of course we did and no profanity on the streets. You yeah. see those signs everywhere. They try very hard to control the ocean front. And it, it's, it's, I think a lot of it is to keep it racially Stimming clean from and, this and event. there. Yeah. It, it is very systematic and it's very gentrified and it's, it's ugly and gross. Luckily, for our story, yeah. our group was safe with uh, at Anna and Clint's apartment when the violence broke out, and it wasn't at the oceanfront, but it was in Virginia Beach. Mm-hmm. Speaking of their apartment, when Danny arrived, he was pretty surprised to find out how badly his brother and girlfriend were struggling. Oh man! The apartment didn't have phone service, didn't have power, and the refrigerator sat empty. Well, they're a bunch of teenagers playing pretend. So what do you expect? But, you know, still, that's rough. Clint had a job at Wendy's, and when they first moved down there, Anna did too. But I see it that she was um, fired, actually, for stealing a sandwich when hungry. Oh, what the hell? So judge her as you will. Fuck capitalism. Give the people free food. So, Clint pled with his big brother to move in and help the couple out. Help them get back on their feet before they lost it all. Such a good big brother. Well, he he was hoping. (laughs) So, they had the space and they desperately needed the help. But the icing on the cake was when they showed Danny all the things there were to do on the shores of the south side that were not in Amelia County. Yeah. 
and Danny was pretty much sold, you know, back home, just sitting at home thinking of his heartache, and here he could do all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, aside from the, the very, very closeted racial, racist nature of the beach, it is an amazing place. Like, there's so much to do. There's metaphysical um, areas. There's, like, all the beautiful shops. There's, like, seven or eight different type, aquarium. you know, beaches. There's the aquarium. Yeah, there's so much to do for, for young, for anybody there. So he was ready to move, like, right away. Yeah, I don't blame him. So, you know, he would have to go home mm -hmm. to take his friends that had come with him back home, get some of his things. But it was decided he was going to move to Virginia Beach. This yeah. was going to be Danny's new start. That's what you do. You're young. You're moving in with your brother. You, you get this. You're going to take care of him. He's ready to start it. So yeah. Labor Day, Monday, September 4th, his two friends and their baby – and Anna piled into the Nova, and they headed north back to their rural hometowns in Amelia County. Right, right. Clint would have come too, but he had to work, and we know he couldn't afford to miss a second of pay. Right, because, I mean, they're only giving him, like, $2 an hour. Anna didn't work at the time, and she tagged along, and it would give her a few hours with her family as Danny tied up his loose ends. That's cool. So, let's get to know Anna a little better. Mm -hmm. She was born Anna Maria Phelps on March 24th, 1971 in Richmond, Virginia. But she grew up in rural Jetersville in Amelia County. Okay. Her parents were William and Jewel Phelps. Anna was one of four children. She had a brother, Will Jr., and two sisters, Rosanna and Cynthia. I'm like I see these trends, and I'm like, you can just tell this is the the area and the, the type of people you know, usually military and stuff. It's they all have big families. Yes, they do. Um, they they actually were not a military family. Okay. Um, her father worked for uh, something in the tobacco industry in Richmond. Nice. Okay. But they they had a nice life. Mm -hmm. Um, she is said to always been a ray of sunshine and bubbly. She had a kind heart. She would always go out of her way to help her family and her friends and even strangers. Nice. She, too, was stuck up for underdogs uh, like Keith. She was outspoken and independent, though, in ways that Keith weren't. And there are reports of her as a kid on the bus slapping other kids for sassing or bullying or Good fighting. God. Yeah. So she was, you know, out there. She had a pretty typical childhood playing with her siblings and exploring their rural land. Mm -hmm. She was, you know, had a happy, happy life. Yeah. Happy like siblings. It. And they were spoiled by their dad. By age 18, she was totally in love with Clint Lauer. Mm -hmm. Now you remember that's Danny's little brother. Yeah. And she was super excited to be marrying him in just a few weeks on September 25th. Oh. So we're at September 4th, and they were going to get married on September 25th. Oh. I'm not sure why that day, but I'm kind of assuming that might be have been right after Clint turned 18. But ah, I'm not, but I'm not sure. I don't know his birthday at all. Yeah, I don't know. Now, with Danny moving in with them, everything was, like, falling into place for Anna. Right. The pair set off in the Nova around 11.15, back to Virginia Beach after they had packed up and Danny was behind the wheel. Both were smiling their goodbyes as they pulled away from the Phelps residence. Ready to go. Ready to go. That was the last time that Jewel would see her daughter. They should have been back in Virginia Beach by about 3 a.m. at the latest. Yeah, yeah, not that far. 
The next morning, when they weren't home, Clint, concerned, started making calls to their families back home looking for his fiance and brother. But, he, you know, he was told they, they left last night. Yeah. It wouldn't be until that evening that the Lawler, that the Lars and the Phelpses could receive the first news of where their son and daughter, respectively, might be. Oh, no. Okay. A state trooper had Danny's car. It was found in the semi-truck acceleration lane at a rest stop along Interstate 64. Hmm. So you know how, like, the cars will pull into the front of the rest stop and they say trucks in the back? Yeah. So it was like it was leaving the truck area, but it was in the grass along the acceleration to get back on the highway. Yeah. Okay. It was haphazardly parked in front of a no parking sign. Um, It was going to be impounded, but at the last minute, the word came across to the trooper that the people in the car had been reported missing. Oh, that's, I guess, thank God for small favors. Right. So they immediately knew this car was a crime scene and called off the impound. Okay, good. Law enforcement received notice of the oddly placed car as early as 9 a.m. that morning. But it wasn't until the evening that anyone took a closer look when he was ready to impound it. The passenger window was down. And just that door was unlocked. The others were locked. The keys were in the ignition, the t- but not turned on. The tank, the tank was three quarters of the way full, and there were no mechanical problems or any other problems, obvious. Huh. That's weird. The car was filled with Danny's personal items, along with some food and household items that Anna had snagged from her parents. There were no signs of a struggle, and nothing seemed out of place. The only thing noticeably missing was the brown electric blanket that Danny's mother had insisted he take with him to Virginia Beach. He probably threw it away like 10 minutes after. Why would you want a brown blanket? You know, everything was brown in the 80s. Did you see those memes? True. Additionally, there was a strangely placed item in the car. Anna's feathered roach clip was placed on the driver's side window. Some took this as a taunt from their abductor or attacker um do you know what a, a feathered roach clip is uh like the only thing i know a roach is is like something you smoke wheat or like when you had the last little bit of a joint and then you need that little thing to hold it to your lips right so i guess back in the back in the day those were really popular and you could huh. buy them everywhere and they came with like feathers attached and and she had wow. one and it was clipped onto the driver's window okay left there okay um so, the only thing that it seemed like was missing, other than what we had just mentioned, uh-huh. are Anna and uh, Danny. This car is on I-64, as I mentioned, and that is definitely the route yeah. they would have taken all the way to Virginia Beach. Yep. But the pair would have been headed eastbound, and the car was sitting on the westbound rest stop, meaning that they were accelerating back onto 64 West. That's like, weird. Right. So, like, they were heading to Amelia, not yeah. away from it. Okay. Eventually, it was discovered that Danny had just received his final paycheck from working with his dad. Nice. And he had a substantial amount of cash on him. And when I say paycheck, I say that, but his dad actually paid him in cash, and that was the normal. There was about seven to eight hundred dollars, and that has never been recovered. That's that's a lot of money. Right. However, he's known to have never carried a wallet and just kept his cash in his pocket. So it's possible wherever he is, similar to Anna's purse that was nowhere to be found, they could just have it on them. Yeah, true. Maybe they just left the car for some reason. Of course, you take your money in your purse. 
yeah, I mean, you want to take anything else? I mean, maybe they thought they were coming right back for some reason. Right. So a search was performed of the surrounding areas, but yielded nothing. Scent dogs could not even pick up their scent outside of the car, almost like they Uh, were never at the rest stop at all. Oh, wow. Maybe they weren't. About six weeks later, well, if they weren't, that means the car was staged. Yeah. Cars with keys in the ignition being staged to be stolen seems like a theme. Yeah. I mean, you leave a car with the keys in the ignition, you're hoping someone steals it, right? Uh, Yeah, because if it's gone, there's no crime scene. Exactly. But it was not stolen. Anyway, about six weeks later, on October 19th, two hunters were doing their hunter jam just uh, off a logging road about a mile from new, where the new Kent rest stop where the car was. And they saw a brown blanket in the weeds and grass. Oh, wow. You know the blanket you wanted yeah, to throw away? Yeah. Remember that one? Upon closer examination, they discovered the blanket to be hiding the skeletal remains of two humans. Wait. Okay. Like, I am not a doctor. I'm a pop star. <laughs> but, like, six weeks does not seem, like, long enough for bodies to completely decompose that much. I mean, I'm guessing because they were in the heat of September, you know, because it's still hot there, up there in it September, and then be, rolled up in the blanket. It said that because of, they weren't rolled in the blanket, just covered. Oh. Uh-huh. And it said that it was a very warm fall and humid and the elements, and it wasn't that uncommon. Okay. Um, it wasn't that uncommon. Actually, um, shortly after they found these two bodies, they actually found another body about four miles away on the same road. Weird. That they had also missed in the initial search six weeks before, and that body had also been skeletized. Jesus So, Christ. you know. It seems like maybe a bit of a dumping ground. I don't know. But that other body had no connection. Um, Anna was basically identified right away by her dental records. But it took a bit to identify Danny, though. But it was strongly assumed to be him. I mean, yeah, that's a fair assumption. Right. But they had to use, like, photos and compare Mm. jawlines. It wasn't as simple as with Anna. The bodies had been decomposed so badly in the six weeks that... They had laid on that logging road that investigators decided to partner with a physical anthropologist at the Smithsonian's Natural Museum to perform an autopsy in hopes of determining the causes of death. I mean, I guess that's what you got to (laughs) do. And I'm sure that would be the place to do it. We actually went there over Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's just amazing to see, like, the skeletals and the recon... It's it's crazy. It's it's so where we came from. It is. And Thanksgiving's a great day to go. It's not packed at all. Oh, yeah. And that's not sarcasm, really. Go on Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there was evidence that Anna had been stabbed. The anthropologists were able to find signs of knife nicks on her bones. And I'm not sure where, but I've read both the abdomen and the hand. Okay. Hand, I would think, was defense wounds. Yeah, most likely. They were not able to find any physical evidence on how Danny was killed, but it's assumed in the same way, but the killer just managed to miss all his bones and stab him. Yeah. Maybe because he was bigger and me bigger, beefier. I, I don't really know what the reason is, but he missed all of Danny's bones. Who knows? To this day, the murder remains unsolved. <sighs> it was after this murder that... I first saw the headlines that connected everything all the way back to Kathy. They were calling this a possible serial killer. 
He was dubbed at this point the Peninsula Killer. Ugh. And it just it goes even deeper though, because there could be way more than one of these running around. Exactly. It's like you can make a case for why each one should be excluded. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy because going through it, I was like, oh, the others are connected, but not Kathy and Becky. Oh, wait, no, Kathy and Becky are connected. It's David and Robin that are the outlier. Wait, 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 Keith and Sandy are the outlier, but now you think that it's all and Anna are. (laughs) They could be four separate incidences. They could be all related. It's there's so many possibilities, and they're all true. Well, we have a lot more to talk about. Oh, I know. The murders of Kathy Thomas. Becky Dowski, David Knobling, Robin Edwards, Keith Call, Sandy Haley, Danny Lahr, and Anna Phelps have now been dubbed the Colonial Parkway Murders mm-hmm. and have been linked by both law enforcement, the victims' families, and media. There are several books and podcasts on the theory that these killings are somehow linked, or at least examining if they are or aren't. Specifically, Bill Thomas, older brother of Kathy Thomas, has a podcast where he delves into these murders extensively, including on-air interviews with family members, law enforcement, and experts. I definitely recommend you check out his podcast. It's called Mind Over Murder, and you can get a really deep dive into the case and these victims' lives, as you'll hear it from people who were with them. As for Beautiful Places to Die, our story doesn't end here. We have another eight victims to discuss on our next episode. So many victims. Please stick with us as we dive further into the bloody history of the beautiful coast of Virginia. Oh, it's going to be good, guys. We have been just so deep into this research, and there's it, it just it's nonstop. It it never ends. It's this is one of the biggest cases on the East Coast, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. In the meantime. By the time you're listening to this, it will be Sandy's birthday. Yeah. Happy happy, birthday. Have a drink for Sandy. And um, hit us up on Insta. Let us know what your thoughts are on what we're doing so far on this case. I'm going to post some pictures of the places and the beautiful people. Thank you and good night. Good night, guys.